if the son of Isaac and Rebecca, who we met last year, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah, who we met the year before. And we saw that Jacob ended up with 12 sons. It's really interesting that as this story has developed, the theme has been childlessness and a struggle to conceive and this struggle for the line to continue. And then Jacob ends up with 12 sons. Um, we, we think, uh, and, and it's like the opposite problem. There are now too many children, as we will see. Um, we think there were some daughters as well. They're not mentioned. I don't think that these mothers were just popping out son after son after son. I think there must have been some girls, but they're not mentioned in the scripture, which is entirely in keeping with the culture at the time. So we saw that Jacob ends up with 12 sons and Joseph is the favorite because Joseph is the son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. There was some childlessness there. In fact, it took Rachel a long time before she had her sons. So Joseph ends up as number 11 of 12. He's got 10 older brothers. That's a lot of video games. But Joseph as number 11, he is visibly and obviously the favorite with dad. Uh, but Jacob as dad and all of those brothers, they are characters in this story as well. It's not just about Joseph yet. As it continues, it becomes just about Joseph. But at this point, we still have Jacob and the brothers as characters as well. And there are problems in all of them. They all have some pretty major character flaws. This is a completely dysfunctional family but there's a really important truth here for you if you've had or you've got a difficult family situation because god works through dysfunctional families god works through people from dysfunctional families this story couldn't make that any clearer our instinct is we assume that having a difficult family, that that would write us off. But having difficult or dysfunctional or complicated family relationships doesn't disqualify you from God's work in you. Or from him choosing you for his purposes. You may have been shaped by things that you had no control over, like Joseph. But God also wants to shape you. You don't have to allow your life to be controlled and shaped by those past experiences. You can choose to give yourself into God's hand and say, I want you to shape me. God and he will shape you differently with his loving hand. R.T. Kendall gives the illustration of a sculptor preparing to start work on a new piece of marble. He'd been commissioned to make a horse sculpture. And the customer looked at this block, this solid block of marble and said, how will you do it? 
And the sculptor said, well, I'll start chipping away and I'll chip away all the bits that don't look like a horse. This is what God does. It's also said about sculpting, isn't it? That, that the final piece is contained there in the rock and the sculptor's task is to set it free, is to uncover it, is to release what was always there in that piece of rock. And this is what God does. He doesn't just change us instantaneously. He works slowly and methodically, but skillfully and carefully and deliberately to chip away the things about us and the things in us and of us that aren't part of what he wants to create in us. It's the work of a lifetime. But slowly, we start to be shaped and we start to look more like the person that he intended us to be and that he wants to use, that he is shaping for his purposes. So you might remember that last week we saw that life with God is life in technicolor. When we submit ourselves fully to him, to that shaping work that he wants to do, he will take us from living a black and white life to life in technicolor. Life in all its fullness is life that is lived under the power of God's shaping and not the shaping of other things from our past. And there are bits of Joseph in all of us. That's what makes his story so compelling. There are bits of Joseph in all of us, and there are bits of Joseph's life in all of our lives. And the ways that we're going to see God working in Joseph and his life are the ways that God wants to work in us. Some of the things that happen to Joseph are a bit like some of the things that happen to us. And God is showing us here the ways that he works. Instead of giving us an instruction manual for life with him, a map setting out the way step by step, instead of that, he's given us a story. So let's read today's part of the story now. We're in Genesis chapter 37, and I'm picking up the story where we finished last week at verse 12. Genesis 37, from verse 12. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? 
He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Well, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. We thank God for his word. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is living and active. You are in this word. You are this word. You've given it to us so that we can understand you more and understand ourselves more. Speak through it, we pray, and give us open hearts to hear. In your name, amen. So, it's the dreamer. Joseph has had these dreams. We heard about them last week. And Joseph seems to assume, uh, if you remember last week, Joseph seems to assume that the dreams he's had are all about him and his greatness. But God has got a much bigger purpose in mind for Joseph than just making Joseph look good and feel good. God is going to use Joseph. God is going to accomplish his purpose through Joseph. He will become a savior of his family. He will become a savior of his people. But not for his own sake. Not so that everyone will admire Joseph, but so that people will see the glory of God and understand God's ways. God is going to get Joseph by the way of many ups and downs, into a position of government 
where Joseph can save his family and save the entire nation of Egypt from famine. But that won't be about Joseph's own greatness. It will be about God's greatness. It will be brought about by God's work in him. And God's work in us is not about our greatness at all. It's about his God's purpose is so much more than Joseph can see at the age of 17. And that is so true for us as well, whatever age we are. So Joseph seems to have been walking around with a confidence that I want to call arrogance. And today we're going to look at this incident with his brothers out on the plains. And we're going to look at what happens when the bottom falls out of your world and it all goes pear-shaped. We're going to look at the times when God feels distant, that he's just not there. And when the dreams of a different kind of life, a different way, when those dreams seem distant and ridiculous, when it doesn't seem like you're ever going to make it out of this. So the backdrop to this is all that we've seen. Relationships are already simmering. And today they're going to reach boiling point. Jacob has given Joseph this robe, this robe which says, I am not a worker. It's the robe of an overseer, a boss that's been bestowed on their little brother. And instead of saying, Dad, please don't make me wear this, Joseph, in his blindness, actually seems to revel in wearing it because he puts it on to walk across the wilderness, the plains, when his father sends him to go and check on his brothers. It's as though he's put on a pinstripe suit to walk across the desert. So they can see him coming from miles away. It's all flat and fairly bare. And they can see him from a long way off. And even from a long way off, there's no doubt who it is because he's got this ridiculous coat flapping around as he walks. Here comes that dreamer, they say, and you can hear the sneer in their voices. Here comes that dreamer, let's kill him. Joseph's dreams are unacceptable to them. Joseph's dreams would upset the established order Joseph's dreams threaten the brother's own status and position. And they want to shut down Joseph's dreams because they're dangerous. And these brothers, they despise the dreamer. We don't like it, do we? Any threat to our established order or to things the way we think they should be. 
someone who speaks a different thing that threatens that. We don't like it. We feel that they're a threat, and we instinctively want to shut them down aggressively, just like the brothers do here. These verses, Genesis uh, 37, 19, and 20, yes, they're up there. Those verses, 19 and 20, are quoted on a plaque outside the hotel building in Memphis where Martin Luther King was shot. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and see what becomes of his dreams. Exactly the same story, literally, being played out. We don't like your dreams. And so we'll kill the dreamer so that those dreams will be killed. Except they're not. This is the gospel secret that is hidden in this nasty little story. Violent little story. The gospel secret that's hidden here is that dreams that come from God cannot be destroyed. Challenge to the established order that is part of God's vision and God's purpose cannot be shut down by the fear of those who fear it and oppose it. What God wants to accomplish, he will accomplish. And nothing that human beings can do will stop it. And I have to disagree here with Tim Rice, the lyric writer of the West End show that we referred to last week. I have to disagree with him. I cannot agree that any dream will do. Any dream won't do. It has to be God's dream. God's vision, God's purpose, not just something we've dreamed up for ourselves because we think it's good. But when it is God's vision, it cannot be stopped or silenced or destroyed. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and see what becomes of his dreams. It's interesting that there is a theme of deceit, of deception, that keeps on cropping up through these stories. Jacob deceived Isaac, if you remember, when he disguised himself as his brother Esau to get the blessing. Laban deceived Jacob by putting Leah in his bed instead of Rachel. And now here today, we have the next generation, the brothers, discussing how they will deceive their father to get away with this act of violence, this murder. They're going to put animal blood on Joseph's beautiful coat and tell Jacob that he must have been attacked by a wild animal. Deceiving is a way of life in this family. Not talking about things that are true, that is the truth, 
hiding what is true behind things that are not true and are manipulated. There's something else here that shows how once deceiving and deceit is in the system, it's toxic. In verse 2 that we read last week, we saw that Joseph was in the fields with his brothers and he brought his father a bad report about them. Now the Hebrew word there for bad report has a meaning that doesn't come across in the English. It has the meaning that the report that he brought is at least partly untrue. False. Joseph brings a report that manipulates his father, Jacob. That deliberately shows his brothers in a bad light. And probably at the same time shows Joseph in the best light. We need to be very careful. There's a commandment that says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this is what that means. Be very careful if you're going to start manipulating the truth about someone else for your own ends, for your own benefit. It's easy to do, and it might seem harmless, justifiable. You might have a good reason, but there are consequences to these choices that we make, and the consequences are beyond our control. Joseph is about to find that out. It's probably a habit with him to, to do this kind of thing, to lie, to deceive, to twist and manipulate the truth of a situation. But now his brothers are going to turn the tables on him and they are going to do it to him. But that's not even the end of the deceiving here because there's a word in verse 18 that is translated that they plotted to kill him. And that word is an unusual construction in the Hebrew. And a literal meaning of what it's saying would be to say they caused deceit to themselves to kill him. They caused deceit to themselves. They deceived themselves. They deceived themselves that killing the dreamer would put a stop to the dream. They deceived themselves that it was okay to commit murder, that it was justifiable. They deceived themselves that Joseph's crimes against them were bad enough to justify this. What deceit do you cause to yourself? How do you deceive yourself 
to justify something? What are you blinding yourself to or choosing to ignore because you've got a justification for it? This is serious. The brothers are in the grip of a lie. Just as much as Jacob and Joseph are in their blindness. And this whole situation is about to explode. First, they do a bit of standard level bullying. They grab him, mock him, push him around a bit. They strip his coat from him. And then they throw him into a cistern. This is Reuben's idea, the oldest. He's the one who'll bear the brunt of the blame if they're ever found out for this. Reuben has broken free of the power of the deceit just a little. And he is secretly thinking that he'll go back and rescue Joseph later when the others aren't around. So this cistern that the story talks about was a bottle-shaped pit dug into the ground. Has a narrow neck, widens out as it goes deeper, and it's a storage for rainwater when the rains came so that they could catch and preserve the rainwater. But it's not rainy season at the moment, so at the moment it is empty and dry. It's got a long, narrow neck. It goes deep underground. It is deep. It is dark. If you're going in there, you cannot get out by yourself. It is literally and metaphorically going into the pit. Joseph is literally at his lowest point. He's in the pit. And he's screaming. He's screaming for his life. He's screaming for mercy. He's screaming for them to help him. It doesn't say that here in this passage, but a few chapters later in Genesis 42, the brothers recall this experience this day. And we realize there that they've been having nightmares about it. In all the years afterwards, they can't get his screams out of their heads. Joseph has no idea why this is happening to him. We don't, do we? When disaster strikes, we have no idea why this is happening, why God would be allowing it to happen. But the thing is, and this is a thought from R.T. Kendall again, the thing is that God doesn't give us notice of when he's going to start his work in us or how he's going to be doing it. 
And we might wish that God would just write us a letter informing us that on the 5th of February, I'm going to put things in motion that are the start of my plans for you. That'll be the start of my shaping for you. But he doesn't. We don't get a notification. And so when something happens that we're not expecting, we're mystified. Why is God doing this to me? We wonder. Why is he allowing this horrible thing to happen? But the only way that he can shape us is by stripping away some things. And that's not going to be an enjoyable experience for us. And our instinctive question is always, why? Why is God doing this to me? Why is God allowing this to happen? And we instinctively think that the reasons must be bad reasons. I must have done something awful. I must have made God angry with me. I failed. Or else God's just stopped caring about me because he certainly doesn't seem to care about me at the moment. Can you see that all of those are lies? God doesn't give advance warning of what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. But we need to understand that the pit is absolutely part of how God is going to get Joseph to where he wants him. Sometimes God unexpectedly puts a roadblock in our path. Sometimes God allows difficult and painful things in our lives because he wants more for us. Because he wants to train us and grow us and provoke us, get us out of our comfort zone. Strip away our false understandings and our false beliefs and our false perceptions because they're just not true. And to get us to a place where we are more fully in his light and his truth. There's a really important truth that Joseph's story has for us, and it's in the title of our series. It's that God is in all of it. He's in it in the sense of never being absent, never walking away, never abandoning us. And he's in it in the sense of being at work in it, even in our pit, to do that shaping of us that is his loving purpose for us. Those of you who've been through the pit, I think, although we don't like being in that hard place in the dark, 
but we can look back on it and say, I learned more there than I ever did when things were rosy and easy. God is actively involved in the pits of your life. And the pit is designed to get the false out of you, to strip that away and to get God's truth into you so that you can become the real you, the full you, and not the you that's been shaped by other things and by other voices. The pit will bring you into the arms of God if you will let it. It will show you who you really are. You may not be liking the sound of this. You may not be liking the sound of the pit, but the pit doesn't last forever. Joseph comes out of it, and so will we. The Father wants you to learn a faith to live by. He wants to grow a faith in us that will trust him, even when everything around us that we can see contradicts that. To be able to somehow inwardly believe and hang on and trust that God is in control and that God's ways and God's plans are good and for our good, even when everything that we can see says the opposite. Joseph isn't ready yet for God to use him, but the work has started. God is going to shape him. And so here is our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father God, may we not be shaped by what's in the past, but only by what you have for us. You have chosen us to shape us by your love. And so we offer to you now the things, the other things that have shaped us. We acknowledge them and we lay them down here. And we give ourselves into your hands. And we ask that you will come and do your work in us, trusting you that your work in us is to set us free. It is for our good and for our growth. And I pray for those today who know they are in the pit right now. That pit is real. Will you give a glimpse of your perspective 
about why we're there, about what's happening and what you might want to do. Give us the courage to cry out to you in our pain and in our helplessness, to put ourselves in your hands and know that we are safe there. You are not absent, you are present and you are close. You are in all of it. Forgive us for our blindness and love us into your truth and your light and your freedom, we pray. Amen.